You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 199. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Wow, 199. I Sometimes you just got to turn this uh, device on and start recording. Otherwise, it'll never get done. Um, today, I want to start with a question. Ever wonder how much technology will be able to bring the past to life? Things that we thought were lost forever and not necessarily, not necessarily lost. I think, you know, I'm thinking of, oh, there was a horrible Black Mirror episode. I know you get there are a lot of fans of Black Mirror out there in the audience. I just, um, and I'm kind of a fan of some of it, but I also find it just too depressing sometimes to watch. But there was one when somebody brought back a uh, uh, a deceased loved one in the form of a robot, but it wasn't really them. It was really just, um, you know, a, a representation of them based on all of their digital signatures. And it was a little bit weird. It was a little bit off. And um, it was very, very eerie. But um, today we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about mostly restoring video from the past. It raises some interesting questions. You know, if you take some old media, some old photos, some old videos, uh, some, some old audio, and you kind of fill in the blanks to make it, you know, to, to add extra details to it that weren't there. Maybe, you know, let, let's take a simple example. Let's say you have a photo and there's kind of a scratch through it, but you can sort of go in there with a very fine tooth comb, a very fine instrument and fill in the scratch with whatever colors were supposed to be there. Um, are you really looking at what was there in the past, maybe, or are you looking at some kind of odd representation of it uh, where you sort of took the past and cross-referenced it with some statistical models from the present, and if that's the case, what are you looking at it? Uh, Big questions. We'll talk about some of these technologies in a moment. First of all, for me, I got a new iPhone this week. I love those weeks, new iPhone week. Finally got 5G connectivity, which I know has been out for a year, but it really, it makes a big difference, particularly up here in New Hampshire. I know we talked about 5G a while ago on the on the program. Actually, I don't even remember uh, how long ago it was, because I think when we talked about 5G, you know, it never really came out. But um, let's see, it's, uh, it's five, eh, when did we talk about 5G? It was episode 54. Okay, so back in, back on February 8th, 2019, we talked about 5G. Um, yeah, so I got it. Finally, it makes a big difference here up, up here in New Hampshire. For some reason, my neighborhood in New Hampshire, the uh, the connectivity is not as good as what I'm used to in New York. But hopefully, well, I think that problem is over for now. Um, so that's good. One thing this phone does not have, but other phones that are starting to appear on the market do have. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes Apple could be a little bit late to adoption on certain things if it's not quite right, if it doesn't quite fit yet, if it's just kind of like, hey, this is new and cool and we're going to fit it in, they might be like, well, no, not yet. We're going to wait and see and then we're going to come in and do it right. But one interesting uh, piece of technology that's starting to appear on the smartphone market is something called the under-display camera. And um, recently there was a short article in The Verge on this, uh, under-display selfie cameras um, from Microsoft, Xiaomi, uh, other other companies are coming out with them. Apparently, they've been out for a few years. They were really, really bad. 
Uh, essentially, the, the camera hides behind the screen, so you could barely see it. Uh, one benefit is that it hides the bezels, so you know the iPhone has that notch that uh, that no one seems to like. Uh, so that's one thing, but I don't think that's the big that's the big promise of that technology here. Now, and, and also I, I should point out uh, they they do say that um, over the last couple of years those cameras have gotten better and better. Certainly not as good as the regular selfie cameras on the iPhone, but um, certainly um, uh, more and more like less obviously bad. I think this technology is going to be really important because one day when that's, you know, when it's ubiquitous, when every, not every screen, hopefully, but when most screens, many screens have cameras behind them, and let's say several cameras behind them, that would allow you to maintain eye contact during a conversation that you're having on um, FaceTime or Zoom or whatever. And essentially, these phones will be windows into another world. You essentially will be able to look through the glass. I find that really interesting. Um, and so I, 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 as these cameras are, the, the, um, the compromise that takes place in the quality of these cameras Im- improves uh, over time. I wonder if this technology uh, will make the phone truly like, you know, you could connect phone to phone. And I know we used to have a, a something that we called in the Foursquare office back when this technology was kind of just new being used for the first few years. We had the portal where we had one big monitor, one big TV in New York and another big TV in San Francisco. And it was just on all the time. And there were large cameras set up next to each one. So you could wave and say hello to people in the other city. But I wonder if you could set up these cameras so that if you could have the setup so if the cameras are behind the screen, you really get a, a, a window into another part of the world. So it really is like the game portal, not like the game portal where you could literally step through the portal and be in San Francisco, but like the game portal where you could literally see what is behind the uh, what is behind the glasses if you were looking through a window. I think that would be pretty cool. Um, the one thing that would be difficult with that is could you change your perspective as you move left and right and look at the window from different angles and see, you know, different parts of, you know, I, I have a window right here in this room, for example. If I tilt my head to the right a little bit, I could see a little bit more of what's going on uh, to the left on the other side because I'm kind of looking at it uh, through an angle. So uh, that that's kind of more difficult because that kind of requires uh, sort of more more 3D technology or more holographic technology. But I think just the technology to say, okay, I'm actually looking at the window and I'm looking through what the camera sees exactly on the other side and so is the other person. I think that's a big deal. Um, and so the question is, will, will we be able to do this? If you have you know a bunch of cameras behind one screen and a bunch of cameras behind the other screen, uh, regardless of how you feel about having cameras behind every screen, because I know now that sounds kind of creepy, but um, will we be able to have that magical experience that I just spoke about? And I think this sounds particularly likely in the case of this technology, in, 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 in this case, because, uh, because of the technology that we're going to talk about today. And it really goes to show how far some of this display tech has come and how it has intersected with uh, machine learning and AI. So, for example, there is a YouTube channel called 19th Century Videos. I'll post it on the show notes page, localmaxradio.com 
slash 199. Not all of the videos are from the 19th century. Some of them are from the early 1900s. Some of them are from World War I, World War II. Um, the photography technology would have been nascent, particularly for video. Any videos that you have in the 19th century are uh, by definition, well, not by definition, but they are going to be very, very rare just because that technology was brand new. You had the Lumiere brothers in France using, who were uh, photographers, I believe, but they were using their photography to make motion pictures in the late 1800s. And you had Thomas Edison in the United States also collecting videos. And if you look at these videos today, they can be fairly grainy. Of course, there's no color. They're in black and white. Um, sometimes you see some of these videos restored and colored, but it's a very, it used to be in the past, a very tedious pro uh, process. Someone would have to go in there and restore each image individually. If you wanted to have a refresh rate that was um, a much greater refresh rate so it doesn't look all choppy, you'd have to you know, say, okay, here's frame one, here's frame two. We're going to slip a few frames between this and... Then all of a sudden you have to design all those pictures. Maybe, okay, that person's arm is going to be swung a little bit over there and over there. And so that's kind of hard to fill in manually. I'm sure it's been tried many, many times, but it's, of course, very expensive. But now, thanks to recent technology that anyone has available, uh, that anyone has access to over the internet, um, thanks to machine learning, AI, GANs, all these things, it's gotten so easy to colorize and upscale these images that they don't need to be done by hand. And, uh, you know, the technology to do it can be downloaded. And the amazing thing is you could see some of these videos come up that take place so long ago and yet look so recent. Not, not that they look recent, but they, they look like they were taken recently because the video is, um, is, is in color and, and the colors look correct. And the video is maybe not as crisp as like a 4K TV, you know, that would, but, but, but much crisper than you would expect. And so here's some examples, like one example is a snowball fight in France. That must be the Lumiere brothers taking place in 1897, uh, a boxing match in Carson City in 1897. Uh, there was a, in, in Italy there were, or in, in the Vatican, there was a, a, a video of the Pope in the late 1800s who, um, the man was born in 1810, and I think that the video was maybe 1896. So someone born in 1810 has been captured in video. And then one they posted like three days ago. This is a really scary one. It's like some kind of children's show with a dancing pig, but the pig is like huge and hairy, and I don't know. This is scary. Is this really for kids? Uh, anyway, this is a 1907. So you could see some of these videos, and it's, um, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. Now, these, this, this YouTube channel is not the only group that is, uh, that is doing it. There are a lot of people who are doing it. Um, another example that I found is something called Time Travel Rephotography. Um, there's actually a, a paper. If you go to the GitHub, there's actually a paper on this, an archive on time travel rephotography by Xuan Luo. Uh, and um, I'll post that as well. And basically, the idea is that not only are, so on their front page, they have a photo of Abraham Lincoln, but not only do they have to colorize it, 
Okay, colorizing it is one thing they have to do, but they also have to kind of clean up the texture and the lighting because the cameras that were used, the, 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 pho- the photography, the photographic technology that was used at the time didn't capture light in quite the right way. And so uh, people's skin and faces actually look a little bit messed up. That's sort of what you get kind of that old-timey look from. And so they did a little bit of cleaning up on that. And so you have Lincoln and, you know, these these presidents and old famous people kind of looking like people look today, which is um, which is uh, which is pretty fascinating. Um, and so, uh, again, I, I appreciate the name time travel re-photography because it kind of reminds you that, um, you know, people in the past had experiences just like now. It wasn't in black and white. It wasn't, you know, so you could see. Uh, the way things were, you know, basically how they were, um, or at least as best as we can, or maybe some idealized version of it based on current statistical models, sort of hard to know. Um, another one, uh, this is a video uh, before I get into a little bit more on how some of the tech works, but um, this is, okay, so there's a video that I'm going to post about colorizing and restoring old images with deep learning, something called uh, Deoldify. And so this is a project that is open source on GitHub online, but you can actually um, try it on Anize, uh, Ionize, sorry, it looks like Anize, A-I-N-I-Z-E. But um, I've done this, you can go on, on Anize and you can basically just, you, it, it's, a, it's a website. You can upload old family photos from Ancestry.com or whatever you have, black and white photos, grainy photos, um, messed up photos. Uh, but it works best with kind of the black and white grainy photos that you you might have some like, you know, family photo from 100 years ago or something you found on Ancestry.com or some historical uh, event photo that you've seen. And you upload this image on this site, and it basically gives you back a color version of the images. Now, the, the color version won't be as large uh, because they they certainly uh, resize it uh, to a certain degree. Uh, there's only a certain amount of up, they don't really do any upscaling, but it's really cool. You can see your ancestors in um, in color as they were, as they really looked. And so that's pretty, um, that's pretty neat. Uh, and so how does this all work? I think there's a bunch of AI machine learning technologies that have come together to make this all possible. One, we've spoken about uh, quite a bit on the program before. It's called the Generated Adversarial Networks, the GANs. Uh, we discussed this way back in episode 56, where we were um, uh, talking about these fake faces. And essentially, the the input data to this technique is, are pictures of tons and tons of faces of human beings. And then you have one machine that creates fake images of human beings. And there's sort of a, you know, you can't just pick one that you've already seen and choose it. There's obviously going to be some rules where you're going to, you know, um, essentially add add priors on that machine, add, add regularization terms on that machine uh, to get into it. So it can't just like memorize the, the data set, but it actually has to learn the features that make up the human face and the different parameters that distinguish one face for another. And so you have that machine learn that, and that machine creates fake faces, uh, fake images of faces. And then you have another machine that specializes in 
discriminating in discerning between the fake images and the real images. So you have one machine doing the work and you have the other machine checking the work. And uh, that's what they mean by adversarial. They're adversarial because the two systems are against each other, but they both have to improve at the same time because in order to outsmart the machine that's checking your work, um, the, the machine that's making the faces has to do better. And then in order to, and then once the machine that is making the faces that does better, the uh, machine that is um, doing, the, uh, doing the discriminative model also has to get better. And so like that, you get an arms race and you finally get a, a pretty good system there. Okay, cool. So we're generating faces. We know what goes into human faces. And there's no reason why you can't do this with other things that humans take pictures of, other things in the world. Great. Another in, uh, tool that often comes up in machine learning a lot that's, you know, I'm not going to talk about how all these come together specifically because that's, you know, many, many uh, hours, days, months, years of research and trial and error from engineers. But one tool that, uh, that uh, could be used, uh, particularly for the machine that is generating the fake images, is the autoencoder. Um, there's a lot of things you can use autos and autoencoders for, but an autoencoder just means that I'm given an image, it's represented by a bunch of pixels. I want to find a different way to represent it. I want to find a better way to represent it, maybe a more abstract way that, um, you know, that, 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 uh, that, that might be a little bit more intuitive. It might be a better representation of what the image is. Uh, you know, for example, uh, if I have a, a bunch of images of faces and, uh, you know, I'm generating it by learning, okay, the dimensions of the face and, um, you know, maybe kind of the ethnicity, the roundness, the, the hair color, the, the skin tone, the, the, the texture a little bit, the, the, uh, the, the, the spots are a little different, all of that. That's very different type of data than having the data as just a bunch of pixels. Uh, because when you have a data that's just a bunch of pixels, it's just a matrix of numbers. And how are you going to tell if something is a face just from a matrix of numbers? You really can't. But if you have these kind of this kind of abstract representation of it, even if it doesn't create the uh, regenerate the face perfectly, but it attempts to regenerate the face, then um, then there's a lot more that you could do with it. Uh, and then the finally uh, thing, uh, another tool that that we can think that. Um, this, this might be using, not just the generative adversarial network, but um, what um, Deoldify and, and Ionize are using, and, and I'm guessing time travel re-photography is using, and I'm guessing uh, on some level the, the YouTube channel 19th Century Videos are using, is uh, generating a, is actually you're, you're, you want to try to age recent photos. So what you could do is you could take new photos and videos and then you could somehow simulate them being aged. You could make them grainier. You could make them black and white. You, if you could somehow figure out how to simulate what this would have looked like if taken many, many years ago, then you can kind of put it together and say, hey, this is what the old version looks like. This is what the new version looks like without saying that we created all from the new version. Um, and this is how to restore an image. And then you can use kind of a supervised algorithm to say, okay, uh, here are a bunch of old images, generate the new images that it should be, and here's a, a large data set 
with uh, where this has already been done correctly. And of course, that large data set can be as, as large as we want. There's like unlimited photos on the internet. So I think that's pretty cool. And you could probably do that with video too. You could do it with audio too. All of that. Speaking of audio, have you heard about this? Discovered in 2008, the oldest audio recording. So the oldest audio recording and playback was by Thomas Edison, I think in the 1880s. I think it was uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb. It turns out that there was something called the phone autograph that was uh, generated uh, many years ago. I'm trying to think, when did this guy create the uh, phone autograph? It was in France, Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville. I butchered that name. But anyway, uh, these things were around from like 1853 to 1861. He was not trying to record sound. That was um, particularly... That would have been particularly difficult at the time, you know, the idea that you're going to record sound and it's 1850. Very, uh, very hard to uh, uh, imagine for people. I mean, I'm sure people were imagining it, but it, um, the, the, the technology just wasn't there. What they wanted to do was to study sound. And so basically they would make sounds, then they would have a device that takes the sound, takes the audio and and kind of vibrates uh, with, the, with the sounds that are made and then uses that to kind of sketch out an image, draw images. And um, I almost, I mean, it, it looks a little bit like, you know, those lie detector tests, not quite, uh, because th- those are actually going from, you know, heart rate or whatever, but it, it almost looks like, um, you know, it, it almost looks like a very like precise, uh, you know, uh, a, a very precise needle on a, on a wheel, and, you know, as, as the wheel spins and as, as, as sound goes, those little vibrations are kind of etched out. And so what's interesting is that th- this was never able to be recorded. But, hey, look, we have the etchings, right? It still exists. And so we know how it was generated. And so the question, uh, when this was discovered in 2008, the question that researchers asked is, can we use this physical etching these images in order to regenerate the original sound and thus listen to what this thing sounded like uh, back in 1860. And they actually figured it out. So um, it, it, it was replayed ultimately with uh, 21st century technology. Both this and, um, and Edison's sound device is actually mentioned in a recent episode of a podcast I like called History That Doesn't Suck. I'll post that as well. Um, and so, uh, yeah, now the sounds are kind of, they're not great. Um, you know, (laughs) the fidelity is not good. There have been some basic attempts to improve the fidelity recently. So why don't we give this a listen to right, uh, right now. This is the sound from 1860. It's someone singing a a song, Eau Claire de la Lune. Uh, okay. So let's hear it. Okay, now I can assure you that the first version they came out with was way worse, but then some some people used some audio tools to kind of fix it up and get it to what you just heard. So still barely legible, but you can make out the, the sound. But I wonder, I bet one day someone could probably use a generative adversarial network or some other AI network uh, method to flesh this out further. So maybe we could one day get a good idea 
of what this voice really sounded like and what this singing really sounded like. I think that's pretty cool. So this is what we can do with the past, but what can machines do to our digital files in the future, our photos, our videos, our sound? Uh, for example, can our videos and photos be made 3D? Can, can we regenerate a world with them? And I think, yes, yes, you can. Now, it's true that, uh, you know, a human doesn't see in 3D with one photograph. A machine, nobody can see, like a, a, a single photograph of an image doesn't show a, a 3D world. But, uh, you know, we know a lot more about the world than just what's in the photograph. So an AI can use the photograph to draw in inferences about what the 3D world it represents might look like. And so it might plausibly allow you to see this room, for example, if you're taking a picture of the room, even from a single photo, it might be able to allow you to see this image from different angles. Now, um, it will be filling in some of the missing missing parts because, you know, think about whatever room you're in. If you move, tilt your head one way, tilt your head the other way, you're going to see all of the objects in that room at a slightly different angle. And then some of the parts of the objects that you saw before come into view, and then some of them come less into view. Some of them get distorted a little bit, like if I'm looking at a block at the front, if I tilt my head, the, um, you know, the, the, the rectangle is just distorted from my view, but I could still see the whole rectangle. That should, machines shouldn't have any problem doing that. But if I turn my head and I kind of see around to the other side, I could guess what the other side of the block looks like. I could make a pretty good guess as a human. Maybe a machine should be able to make a good guess as well, even though we don't know what's there on the other side. Is there a sticker on it? We don't know. But I think, um, I, I, I think the way that machines could be able to fill in the missing info, and we have to think about, of course, like, like I said at the beginning, what does that mean to actually fill in these missing spots? Like, are you really seeing the world as it was, or are you seeing some representation of it? And at what point does it go from real to fake? That's a, that's a heavy question. I think I'm going to have to get someone else here to talk about that. But I think what the machine is going to do is first of all, it has to have an imagination. It has to know what are the possible things that it could see in the room, which is uh, you get that type of imagination from uh, unsupervised and supervised learning on photos. So in other words, if the machine gets experience, if it sees lots of photos of rooms, it might know, okay, you know, objects in the real world tend to look like this. And um, also with a little bit of randomness, and random search, it could probably find a whole bunch of, it could probably come up with a bunch of different ideas. And then once it does that, I think it would have to come up with the, you know, which images are most plausible. So let's say we want a picture uh, from, of, of something, uh, let's say I, I'm looking at a picture and I want to generate that picture from a slightly different angle. I think if I'm taking, looking at a, a picture of a person and I move to the right two inches, the shape of that person's nose is probably not going to be that much of a surprise if I kind of tilt left or maybe a little bit. Maybe there's a little bit of wiggle room on what exactly their nose looks like. But I don't think that, you know, different machines are going to come up with uh, wildly different uh, estimates of what, the, of, what that, of what that is, of what that person's face looks like as you kind of tilt back and forth. But let's suppose I tilt back and forth and there's a window in the back. and the window, you're looking out towards a city. And so if I kind of tilt to the, to the right, you can see more buildings on the left. 
And so what's plausible, a whole variety of things could be plausible because I'm seeing more space. Um, I could see more buildings. I could see trees. Probably, it probably wouldn't look like static on the TV. So it wouldn't generate something like that. It would just have to generate something plausible. And maybe in, uh, in the good old-fashioned um, method of uh, searching Bayesian posterior spaces, uh, we can have a machine calculate you know, a few different plausible worlds. Like, hey, I want to shift my view 90 degrees. What am I looking at? Uh, and I could be like, well, here are five different possibilities. They all look similar, but they all have some differences. So I'm excited about all of this technology. Just to summarize, uh, I highly recommend that... Well, the easiest one to do is to go on... Um, uh, 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 deoldify ionize. If you have any old photos yourself and you want to use that, definitely show us at um, maximum.locals.com. Um, if if uh, and I'd, I'd love to see some photos that you uh, that you deoldify, but also check out the other two sites I showed the um, the uh, the nineteenth century. Uh, videos, the time travel re-photography, and uh, check out how, how cool those are. I think that um, the fact that we can do this um, gives us a lot of possibility for the future and that any digital content that you create today is not does not have to be in its final form. It could be used in some giant model in the future. Even, a t- even one photograph could be used to recreate an entire room, uh, an entire world can be used to create lots of inferences. So when they say uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, maybe a picture is worth a lot more than that. Maybe a picture is worth a thousand worlds. And of course, you know, the idea that uh, we could do this in real time and uh, look through our phones, so to speak, is in light of this technology, not at all far off and not at all um, out of the question. So I think this stuff's really cool. Join me next week in for episode 200. I'm going to try to have Aaron join me for episode 200. That'll be fun. I, I don't know what kind of look back we do because there's always the, um, there's always the look back than the the new year, and so we want to do something a little different for each one. So we'll get that. And I do have some big guests coming up. Uh, so, uh, so look forward to that. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support the local maximum. Sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.